Welcome to the DMF. I am your host, Justin Yance. This is episode 12, and we are talking about A Most Violent Year, a film that came out in 2014 by J.C. Shandor. The film is by Before the Door Pictures and released by A24. This is a great film. I love talking about this film. I did a lot of research into this film, so we're going to talk a lot about the overall film, the significance of the year that the film takes place in, the cast, the production, some of the costumes, the music, some of my favorite scenes, the reception that the film has, and the perception and the possible sequel that is coming up. So that's what we have for this show. So stay tuned, sit back, relax, and enjoy. Most Violent Year is a film that takes place in 1981 New York. It's about a fuel supplier who tries to adhere to his own moral code amid the rampant violence, corruption, and decay that has threatened his family and his business. Now this film takes place in 1981. Now the significance of that year is this is when crime was at its peak in New York City. It had never really been this bad. There was a lot of cost cutting that was happening and this was like the apex of it. A lot of films like Taxi Driver and The French Connection showed New York in a very certain light whereas this film is kind of showing the overall of the film. It's not taking place mainly in the city but you get the overall feel of New York and at this time this was the peak of white flight which was a lot of, you know, people were flooding to the suburbs. And this film is really about a man who's striving to, to really be the top entrepreneur in his, in his business. When I look at it, it reminds me a great deal about what was happening, that was gonna happen in the 80s in 1984 in the professional wrestling business. If I could say that, um, a bell in some ways resembles a Vince McMahon, someone who's trying to gobble up all the other, you know, heating and oil companies. So it's really about a man who has a business, but he wants to reach the next level. And 19, and it's all happening in 1981. Now, 1981 is a very significant year because this is a year where um, I believe Tom Cruise started his first film. Kevin Costner started his first film, like pretty much a lot of people were going to come into the film business and I think 22% of that, of these the people that had just started in 1981 would carry on the box office for many years. We're talking about John Lasseter, Brad Gray, Alfred Molina, you know, Demi Moore. All these people started in 1981. So that's a little bit of the significance of 1981. Let's talk about the cast. Now the cast is unbelievable. This film stars Jessica Chastain and Oscar Isaac. I say Jessica Chastain's name first even though it really is Oscar Isaac's film but Jessica Chastain was cast first. She had been at a 
premiere party for All Is Lost, and he told her, J.C. Chander, Shandor, told her about this script, and she loved it and wanted to work on it. And um, it's actually interesting because uh, Javier Bardem originally was going to play the Oscar Isaac role, but when that fell through, Jessica Chastain actually wrote a letter and requested and asked JC if uh, Oscar could, you know, try out for the part. And he said, he sent back that he had already, he was already on his mind. So she really championed him. But let's look at Jessica Chastain, who plays Anna in this film. Now, she was cast first, but um, the production was very, they felt very lucky to work with her because she had just done Zero Dark Thirty. She was really coming up, and for her to work on this little kind of independent film, a little bit bigger than a in regular independent film. Um, actually, from my research, I didn't know this, but uh, Charlize Theron passed on this. But Jessica Chastain brought this ferociousness to her character that I don't know if anybody else would have brought. Um, she wanted her to feel like she didn't have an accent. She was very specific with this character. She saw, you know, this this working woman, but this woman who was like just almost as ambitious as Oscar's character, who plays Belle. And she said doing this film felt like a play for her. She um, So she wanted Anna to make it almost feel like she doesn't really have an accent. Uh, she's got these long nails. They they wanted her to have these long nails so that, you know, basically she couldn't really do anything but, you know, certain kinds of work. Because her nails are so long. Like, this wasn't the type of woman who's going to be, like, raising the children while Abel is out, you know, working. This is a woman who's very much in there and a part of it. She's like the CFO, if you really look at it. So I just think um, Jessica Chastain just nailed it out of the park. I think it's one of her best roles. I still think about it to this day. Even before I did this podcast, I think this really is her role for me. Go, moving on to Oscar Isaac, who plays Abel Morales, which is funny. His name is, uh, is kind of... Um, a play on words of Abel and morals. They kind of first met Oscar when the when the film Inside Lewin Davis was out, and I think they met at like cons, and they kind of sat and talked a little bit about this role. Now, originally Javier Bardem was going to play this role, but you know he dropped out, and um, Jessica really you know championed Oscar. She wanted him because they both went to Juilliard together. Oscar and and Jessica. Now Jessica was a little bit ahead of him in classes, but they saw each other doing plays and they're friends and they've always wanted to work with each other. Jessica and uh, Oscar, I think, both believe that like this is probably their fav one of their favorite acting experiences because they felt like they were working with two people who both had the same goal. They really were Anna and Abel. They were that team. So, 
they had a real uh, unit. Um, they openly talked together, you know, about the scenes. They really just trusted each other, which is great to see. And uh, J.C. Shandor says he loves having two great actors going at it. And there's a lot of scenes like that in the film. Moving on to David Oyelowo. <laughs> Oyelowo. I, I'm, tr I've, I'm trying to pronounce his name. He plays Assistant D.A. Lawrence. And he really knocked it out of the park. He, he based his accent off of the DA at the time in Brooklyn. Wonderful actor who comes from, he's got that just real properness to him. You could tell he's really well trained. He really gave this, this character a lot of, you know, like you could tell he, he was strong, but you know, he didn't really have to show it. Just a fantastic actor. Alessandro Nivola, who plays Peter Ferrente. Uh, he's been in films such as um, The Art of Self-Defense, American Hustle. He plays this character with a benevolent charm, as if he's always got you in his back pocket. I love the way he played him. Also, I, f I forgot to mention one of my favorite roles that I saw him do is uh, The Neon Demon. He was in that as well. Laurel Cannon and... Um, Face up. Sorry, I didn't le read off a list for Oscar Isaac and Jessica Chastain. I mean, Oscar Isaac, he played Poe Dameron in, in uh, the Star Wars series Inside Lewin Davis. I already kind of made mention of that. With David, he did um, Selma. He's done a lot of great theater work. I'm probably missing some names. Oh, he was in Interstellar. He was the teacher and he played a small role in there, but which is great in this. Both Alexandro and David both nailed it. Elise Gabel, who plays Julian. Now, he's gone on to uh, do the TV show Scorpion, and he dated uh, Catherine McPhee at one point. He brought this real, like... Like, he, this character who has this weakness inside, but he really wants to do the right thing. He, he's the fearful character who is the sacrificial lamb of this movie. He's a very tragic character. He's like the driver protege to uh, Abel because Abel at one point was driving the trucks. In, in we never see that in the films, but it's made mention that Abel did the job that Julian is doing. And in some ways, at one point in time, Julian was, Abel was Julian. And now he, he kind of championing him, but, you know, really can't push him the way he wants to. And Alessandro Nivola, who plays Peter, that's who Abel wants to be. Now, Albert Brooks is in this film. He plays Andrew Walsh. He is the mob lawyer, almost Abel's right-hand man. He came into it. Uh, J.C. talked to them over coffee. J.C. Shandor, just so you don't get that mixed up with Jessica Chastain, who both have the same initials, but J.C. Shandor, the director, talked with Albert Brooks over coffee. They both are directors and writers, so they both shared a lot in common. At one point, Stanley Tucci was going to play this role, but something happened, I think, scheduling conflicts. Oscar Isaac really wanted Albert. They 
love that Albert Brooks said that, you know, films have kind of um, gone into two different categories and you made mention of, you know, independent films and the big blockbusters. And that's true. I thought Albert brought a lot of, you know, sincerity to a character that could just be, just be quick and we would just kind of forget about. But Albert really brought him to a grounded level. But he's also so honest and, and funny and, and, and likable. He's a very likable character in this. Um, one of the people that uh, plays another minor role, Catalina Sandino Moreno, she plays Luisa. And she was in Maria Full of Grace. And she plays Julian's wife. And she only has like, yeah, only one scene. But you really see, you know, the vulnerability of, you know, where Julian has kind of placed her in. Not to, not to give spoilers, but at one point Julian gets into trouble and we see his wife and Catalina plays the wife and we see the, the fear that she's got in there. She's a fantastic actress. Glenn Fleschler plays uh, Arnold Klein. He's one of uh, the competitors that Abel is trying to kind of put out of business. You would know Glenn Flesher from uh, Billions. He was in Joker. He was in, where he really kind of started, things started to mesh for him, was, was True Detective. He's great in this film. He plays like kind of a smug guy, but underneath it all, you know, he's just, you know, trying to, to maintain daddy's business. I, I love the way he plays it. This, you know, even though he's he's strong, he's got this little bit of vulnerability there that you always can sense in his characters. Of, like, yeah, you can get to him. Uh, Christopher Abbott plays uh, Luis Cerrito, and he has he's just one of the people that are trying to hijack the truck. But <laughs> there's some scenes there where you know he's attacking the guy, and you know they kind of get into. He's like, okay, you got to go. Like he doesn't want. They need the fuel, but, you know, he doesn't really want to, you know, hurt people. He's not evil. He's just the guy doing a job, an independent contractor, so to speak. So there's other people in the cast, but that's the main cast, and we will be moving on. Let's talk about the production. As I said, this was produced by Before the Door Pictures, and it was distributed by A24, who have done a lot of great films. Now, it's interesting. This film actually, while they were filming it, took place in pretty much the most violent winter we've ever had in New York City. So they had to deal with severe weather conditions, and that was frustrating to deal with because there's a lot of exterior shots being being shot it, it it's very it, it brings a very coolness to it because the movie's about heating and oil companies and here we have the snow and the way uh Bradford um the uh director of photography shoots everything he shoots it with these warm colors instead of like you know what most people will probably do which is like cold colors and he films it in this, you know, very like yellowy, you know, oranges. So it's a very interesting color palette. Um, it's an interesting little fact that the, uh, there's a scene in the film where uh, all the heating and oil businesses are kind of like sitting around a table. And where they filmed that, the director actually talked to like the bartender 
of the restaurant, he said that after The Godfather came out, they all kind of did this. They would rent out the restaurant and have these little meetings. Now, the, the film was um, budgeted at 12, 20 million. They, ha they did have access to a subway car from the MTA, but they couldn't put any uh, graffiti on it. So it all had to be done digital, which is amazing because it looks very real. Um, it's interesting that the, the mythology of the film is kind of based off of deontology, Immanuel Kant, which is a person should not make decisions based on an outcome, but, what is on, but on what is most right. And if you look at that, that is pretty much a Bell's character in a nutshell. And this is a time, like I said, when people were, were leaving behind the 80s. So very interesting um, production schedule. I mean, that had to have been hard to deal with. Um, the filming began on January 26, 2014, and I believe it ended somewhere between March 18th and 2014. They actually dedicated the film to one of the camera assistants, Sarah Jones. She died on another set while it was in production, so I think she worked a couple of days on there. That was very nice of them to do that. The production design was drawn, done by John P. Goldsmith, who worked on uh, Perry Mason. And he looked at a lot of reference photos. There wasn't like a lot of time to do a lot of prep, but he did it on his own. He's a former architect, and he's very um, sensitive to levels of detail. And this film is all about like duality of character. Who is he and who is he really? And you can see that reflected in a lot of the exterior and interior shots. They had to get cars, telephones of the time. There's a sign at one point when they're in the uh, subway that was like from the 70s. It was really hard to show the level of decay that the city was going through in the 70s and in the 80s because New York looks nothing like that. It's a safe place. It's basically Disney World in some ways. So they shot some of it actually in Detroit just for like a couple of scenes because they couldn't find anything in New York to look like what they needed. So the art department had its work cut out for them. Um, like I said, John did a lot of research on his own. There's... Um, they kind of, the, the way they thought of this film is it needed to be shot like almost it was on a 30-foot painting. And Bradford Young, who is the director of photography, the cinematographer, he shot Solo, the Han Solo film. He shot Arrival. He shot a little indie film that I saw. Well, I've never seen it, but I've heard of it, Pariah. Uh, they discovered him when... Uh, they were watching a film called Ain't Them Body Saints is the name of the film. And then they watched Mother of George and Middle of Nowhere. And these are some films that, he, that he's done. And he lights a lot of darkness and shadow. Oscar at one point called him in one of the feature ads an alchemist of light. <laughs> I like that. Um, just amazing composition. And he didn't want to just do Taxi Driver. He wanted, this, he wanted to show the elegance of decay. Whereas in Taxi Driver, it just all looks rough and it looks like the place you never really wanted to live. <laughs> it was shot in widescreen film. It was anamorphic. They used Ari lenses, which they're only like three lenses, but they pretty much shot like 95% of the film on one lens. They did a lot of um, two shots at one point, which is hard to do because if you're shooting 
on two shots you can't really cut anything out so everything has to be almost exact and like almost all this film was shot like on a 50 millimeter lens so you got to know what you're doing so that's a little bit about the production um if i could talk a little bit about the director the director is very good at building tension jc can create it and maintains tension if you've ever seen the film margin call he can take like little mundane scenes and make them very tense. And then he did a film called All Is Lost where Robert Redford is on a boat and it's almost like the man versus nature. And I've, I've never seen that film, but I, I can almost see it in my head because this guy is an amazing, an amazing director. So J.C. Shandor really, you know, he, he wanted to do, he, he does films that are like almost the opposite of what you'd expect. He said he was getting all these scripts about, you know, violence, and they were all this gratuitous violence. But what he loved about A Most Violent Year was that here's a film where it's not, although I believe he, um, he wrote this film. I, I'm quite sure he wrote this film. Now, now I'm, I'm coming to the, like, the one thing I don't know off the top of my head is if he wrote it, and I'm pretty sure, yeah, he did write it. So even though there were scripts being given to him, he, I guess he came up with the idea. He was seeing all these gratuitous, violent films, and he wanted to do a film about realistic violence. So there's a point in the very beginning of the film where they hijack a car, and they hit him like three times with the butt of the gun, and that like takes him out. And they had an idea, you know, when they'd have shooting scenes, they said it's very quick in real life. There's not a lot of, you know, of time between the things. It's, it's, it's fast. And then we cut back to the hospital and we see the damage of what the butt of the gun did. So this film has violence in it. And only two people really die, but, you know, it's, it's realistic violence. And he didn't want to just do a film to glorify violence. I, I really respect him for that because he's trying to do something different. And I think that's one of the best things you can look for in a filmmaker. And J.C. Shandor just nails it. So that's a little bit about the production. I'm going to talk about the costuming next. Let's talk about the costumes. The costumes were done by Kazia Walika Mamwan. She's the costume designer. She was the costume designer for Moonrise Kingdom, Black Mass, Bridge of Spies. And she says her job is to see the underlining design in the film and understand if, to understand it and bring it to life. She also says that the clothes are kind of like the skin of the character. They're like the last part of the character. And she saw that the palette was driven by light, she made all of Abel's suits that Oscar Isaac wears by hand. They were all done by her. She said it's very hard to find period clothing because period clothing, if, if you find it, it's hard to find multiple versions of it because in film you need many versions to go through in case, you know, one gets dirty or, you know, the character is, the character's costume has gone through distress. And J.C. didn't want this film to be like a camp walkthrough of the hits of the era, the 80s, because this is 1981, 
and really they're still kind of wearing 70s slash slash 80s it's just starting to come in um so she felt that you know it's very hard to do to find fine-tune everything especially like when you have like cops of that time period and things like that it, everything's got to be very specific now Jessica Chastain's character of Anna she knew Roberto Armani and she asked them if they wanted to dress her so they said sure and they sent her to Milan with Kasia and they went through Armani's archives and found Anna's Anna's clothes actually there's one dress that um, she took from the film and had a duplicate made of it in red and I think she wore that to the premiere so Jessica really loved these clothes and they really fit her her character there's a featurette where they were talking about the the idea of the power suit which was all about attaining power as fast as possible so very very detailed clothing in this film but JC is not the type of uh, JC Shandor is not the type of director who wants like the clothes to stand out he likes everything to kind of just meld into the background so it was very hard to find you know all these exquisite outfits and then make it there because Abel's wearing this you know the beige coat which was kind of that was the color that that would become the color of the 80s that beige coat and he's always wearing a suit the only time you see him not wearing a suit jacket is if he's at home because that's his armor that's what he's wearing so the clothes were very detailed and I really enjoyed what Kazuya did with this film the music the music is composed by Alex Ebert. He composed the score. And his idea for the score was kind of a mix between Scarface and Miami Vice, a lot of that synthesizer sounds. And if you really pay attention, you can hear the Scarface elements to it. The, um, a lot of the songs, almost one of the songs, um, I Am and We Are, the track is, it sounds almost like a Ferris wheel going around and around. And it's this bleak, you know, just kind of like they're being surrounded. It's kind of the feeling I get with the music. The final song, which Alex Ebert did, is actually from the point of view of Julian, the character who, spoilers, dies. <laughs> spoilers there. But I, I can't imagine somebody who hasn't seen this film is listening to this whole thing. So you've got that song there for Julian, which I thought was really interesting that Alex Ebert did that. And there's some great tracks in there. One of my favorite tracks in there is um, I Love a Bell's Theme. I like Close Haircut, which, which is where one of the chases is and uh, the garden shadows when Julian runs from the police adds this kind of like the walls are closing in on a bell and he does not know what to do so <laughs> I really love what he did with the music now some of the original real music uh, 
that they licensed was uh, at the very beginning of the film. The film starts with Inner City Blues by Marvin Gaye. This introduces the film, and I thought that was a wonderful way to, you know, really take us into this world. We start off from, the, you know, seeing the pavement, and then we move up and we find, you know, we see a bell. So that's a little bit about the, the music and the score. Now I'm going to talk about some of my favorite scenes in the film. I love all the scenes between Jessica and Oscar where they're arguing. I think those are just masterfully shot and done and just, you can tell those two knew each other and they could trust each other because when they would, have, they would go at it. There's a scene where, you know, uh, Jessica's character of Anna just shot the deer in front of him and has led Abel to know that now she has a gun and he's like on alert and the director said you're just waiting you're just waiting to have the fight with her and it's just it's brilliant because he just you know lets her have it and she's coming back at him and it's just this back and forth and at one point she slaps him across the face and he you know gets right in her face and he, he's going to do it, and he, he, does, he storms off, and he's got the hand up. It's great. And then at the very end of the film, toward the end of the film, they have another fight, and we find out that Jessica Chastain's character has been skimming money from the, from the company, and he's mortified to find out that, you know, he's like, well, what else has she been lying to me about? And it's, it's just this great fight that they have. So great, and it establishes so many new things. The ending, I love the ending where they're, they're out to see what they've just bought the place and they're looking out at the, at, the, at the riverside and they can see the skyline of New York and here comes Julian and he shoots himself and he hits, and he hits, the, the bullet ricochets and hits his, um, well it doesn't ricochet, it shoots through him and hits the, uh, the oil tankers. And you can see the oil coming out and it's almost symbolic, like this has been stained now with blood. It's oil and blood. That's what it took to get this thing. He had, you know, blood has been spilled, oil has been spilled, and now the, the tanker's leaking oil. And it's almost like, you know, he's, he's kind of been cut open. And we see a different side of a bell later because he makes a deal with um, the DA. And it's, you know, even though like right across the street, you're seeing, uh, you know, Julian being scraped up off the ground. And here he is making a deal with the DA. It's like, I can't have you being in my, dealing with my business. And the DA is like, okay, that's fine. But you're going to help me politically. And it's great ending to what the film is about, you know, the American dream. It's a dissection of the American dream, but here's, here's the part you don't know about, the bribes that are going to go, okay, he got to the top fast, but look at what he did. So, um, another scene I love is when the DA comes in while they're having a birthday party and Anna is trying to buy time for her. She's like, we have nothing to hide, we have nothing to hide, and she, they're trying to get the boxes out that have all their uh, files in it. And, you know, you can see Anna trying to 
pick it up. She can't really do anything. She's got the long nails. And, you know, and she's like, I don't want him going through it until I've gone through them. And then the last scene I'm going to talk about that I think really establishes Bell's character is when he's talking to the new workers and he says, you, the most important thing you, you'll learn is it'll never be harder than looking somebody in the eye and telling them the truth. And at first it's kind of played for comedy and he says, it's not very funny to me. It's not very funny to me. You know, I am, you, you will not keep this job unless you close. And he's giving them the whole speech and he goes really into it and then he breaks it up. Okay, have a good, you know, but it establishes who a bell is. A bell is going to give them to him but then he'll bring back, you know, he's like, ah, let's, you know, let's joke around a little bit. You know, because he's all about, you know, there's the inner and the outer. There's a duality with the bell. When they're at the, the with the banker or whatever, the banker says, you know, kind of, you know, doesn't, he kind of lets him, he, he lets him have it, but he lets him have it with logic. And there's one point where he says the, uh, the banker's name, Ian. He says with such disdain. He's like, you know, just shut up. You know, he's like, you know, he's kind of questioning him. So there's so many great scenes in this film. I think almost the whole film is a great scene. So it's hard to pick favorite scenes, but those are my favorites. And I really enjoy watching those parts. Let's talk about the reception of this film. As I said, this film was budgeted at $20 million. It made $173,000 in its opening weekend. It made $5.7 million in domestic, $12 million in international. It came out January 30th, 2015, although in some of the select cities like New York and L.A., it came out in December 25th of 2014. As I said, it's by A24. They use an Ari Alexi, Alexa, which is a great camera. Uh, the National Board of Review named it their best film of that year. Um, yeah, as I said, Sarah Jones was put there. So I, I don't know if I would say it was a huge success, but it's a nice little film to go back on and remember. And like I said, it, it, it's interesting when you look at this year that this film takes place in, 1981. Ben Affleck, Kim Basinger, Kevin Costner, Jeff Daniels, William Defoe, Tom Cruise, Holly Hunter, Alfred Molina, Demi Moore, Sean Penn, Jeffrey Rush, Meg Ryan, Kathleen Turner, Denzel Washington, James Cameron, Frank Darabont, Brad Gray, as I said, Don Hahn. John Lasseter, Michael Mann, Sammy Raimi, Joel Schumacher, and Harvey Weinstein all really started out in 1981, and they were part of pretty much the gross of films to 2014. They were 22% of the gross. From 1981 to 2014, 22% of the gross of films was from this group. And uh, 1994 was their peak. So when I look at a most violent year, it, it takes place in this really interesting year. Now here's something I didn't know. They are beginning a treatment on a sequel and they're lining up the cast. So we are gonna have a sequel to a most violent year. 
Here's the question. Is it going to take place a year after 1981? Is this going to be 1987, you know, after the stock market crashed? Is this going to be the 90s when there was a little bit of a crime wave there, but it was insulated in certain areas? Is it going to be in this time period? A lot of questions to be asked, but I think it'll be... An, I think the sequel has a chance to do what the the original didn't do, which was... I don't know if enough people saw it or knew about it. And the sequel might be the film that like makes people actually, you know, really take a look at it. Because I think this is a film that everyone should look at because it's a dissection of the American dream. As I said, you could put the point of, you know, he's like Vince McMahon and he's facing off against all these other territories, trying to put them out of business, trying to be the top dog, which is what happened in professional wrestling which that, you know, kind of happened in 1983, 84, 85. So the 80s really was that year of, you know, the entrepreneur and, you know, gobbling up all the little businesses. And this film really, you know, shows where that's going. So I really enjoy this film. It's, it, it's got that entrepreneur spirit of a character who has to get dirty to get to the other side. And I like that in the character. I think another name they could have called this movie was American Dream or America. Is it just, it reflects the American spirit in a lot of ways. So I love this film. I really enjoyed talking about this film. And yes, thank you for listening to the DMF. If you have any comments, please let me know. And... I will, you will hear me next time on the DMF.